Don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine podcast isn't just a podcast. The clue is in the magazine bit. We were a magazine first and we still are. We're a monthly magazine. And right now you can subscribe for three issues for £5. Just check out cyclist.co.uk. And there's also a really quite impressive little offer at the moment that we've got running, which is subscribe and get a sportful hot pack gilet, which is a very, very light gilet, which apparently, I know I've got the jacket version, and that had 60 kilometers of yarn in it because that's how thin the thread is. And this is a gilet version. So it's probably, you know, it hasn't got the arms, but it's probably got about 40K in it. But they're really, really good. They're weatherproof, windproof, all that jazz. I can absolutely vouch for it. It's a £75 free gift for subscribing, ladies and gents. So check out cyclist.co.uk and subscribe to our lovely magazine now. Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm your host, James Spender, and joining me today down the end of a wire, and I can see a rugby shirt in the background because this guy is a polymath of sports, also listens to NFL podcasts. It's Mr. Will Strickson. How are you doing, Will? I'm good. A polysport? A polysport, a polyglot. I think a polyglot's probably really bad at polysport. It sounds slow. But it's also like a, that probably gives my physical ability a bit too much credit i think it's best be known that this is in a in a viewership variety i can participate in sports can you what you as in you're allowed to or you have the physical ability to do it well the home do let me out every now and then to uh, <laughs> knock them all about uh, so james yes i'm gonna i'm gonna take control now okay because i feel like you have a lot of control in this conversation uh-huh what bike have you been riding recently and what are your thoughts about it uh, do you want the uh, horrible truth or the beautiful lie? Both. Okay. Don't tell me which one's which. <laughs> well, uh, the bike is an NV Mog, which is um, a very expensive gravel bike by NV, based out of Utah. Um, and the horrible lie, or the, no, the terrible, no, the horrible lie, the horrible lie. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna shine a light on something, if that's all right. I'm gonna use this podcast as a way of diffusing stigma around a certain condition, because I noticed that the king, our erstwhile Prince Charles, was in, uh, I was going to say in prison, in hospital for (laughs) an enlarged prostate, which I believe involves shaving the prostate down and it can lead to cancer. And it is something that was specifically put into the news because it's good to make people aware of those things, especially men, because men are crap at going to the doctor. Me, Will, I haven't been riding at all. And what you can't see and this is going to shock you, is under the desk, I've got my leg up on a little stool. And the reason it's up is because my toe is swollen. And the reason my toe is swollen, wait for it, is because I'm a gout sufferer, Will. That's right. I've got an 18th century disease that affects affects my joints. And it's not as bad as everyone thinks it is. It's just got an awful name. Actually, no, the actual, the the upshot is it's really horrible because uh, it means you sort of can't walk and your joints get really inflamed. But um, it's not because I eat lots of lobsters and drink loads of port. It's just a, it's a hereditary condition because my kidneys just don't do the thing that a lot of kidneys need to be doing. Yeah, and you, you know, you're not alone. I've got a couple of gout sufferers in my family. Oh, you have? No other gout sufferers. Gosh, yeah. I, how old are you? Not me. No, how old are you though? God. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Well, this is this one. So <laughs> gout, gout can occur. Often occurs in men between thirty and fifty. How old am I? I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I'm twenty-seven. There you go. Turn thirty, mate. You're much more likely to get gout if you have a gout sufferer in your family, as in in the bloodline. And I, my uncle, suffers from gout, 
And there you go. It's hereditary. So do I. One generation down slightly to the side, my mother's brother. So I'd watch out. I will. I'll be watching over my shoulder and right down to my toes. Exactly. The spectre of urate crystals forming in the cartilage of your big toe awaits. Phil Spectre in my toe. Phil Spectre in your toe. Anyway, so um, I'm glad you seem to have taken that seriously and in your stride. You didn't seem to be too shocked. I hope listeners aren't too shocked. Well, I did think we were going to get inside your prostate for a minute, so I'm glad it was, I'm glad it was going. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, that's true. So am I, because it's probably more treatable and less, less invasive. But anyway, yeah, so that's really annoying. I can't really cycle because I can't put pressure on my foot. We should move on. This has really taken a turn. It's not a gout explainer. It is a podcast about cycling. That's someone really interesting. Exactly. And we do have a really interesting guest, don't we? Would you like to introduce him, Will? He is the man that made Chris Froon. That's If you've made the film, you've probably caught that. Yeah. It says, kind of discovered him. Discovered him, mentored him, trained him. It's David Kinger. He's, got, he's also got some achievements in himself. Let's not get, get that past. He's done plenty in his cycling career. He's done a hell of a lot and way more than I realised. And we talk about that at the top of this chat, but we also talk about his involvement with Chris Froome. But yeah, I think actually it does uh, the gentleman a massive disservice to say he's just the guy that found Chris Froome. That that broke him, but he was an incredibly talented rider, still is, still rides, and also has some brilliant stories about being an athlete from Kenya trying to compete, or actually not trying, competing, but you know, trying to break through into the European ranks in the early 2000s. So without further ado, let's welcome to the show, Mr. David Kinger. Having spoken to Hattie earlier today, she said that you were just on a bus and you just got back. Have you been somewhere? Yeah, I'm always moving around because uh, I am the leader of the project, which is Safari Simbas. We have a, a senior team of very competitive cyclists. We have uh, intermediate riders and we have upcoming youngsters. We have events all around the country and at the beginning of the year, then uh, we are trying to do meetings and setting up uh, which events will be which dates, trying to get sponsorships. I was also in Arusha, Tanzania, trying to get some uh, second-hand bicycle parts for the squads. So I've been moving uh, a lot for the last two weeks. Yeah, so is that the same team that you, did you used to race for it or did you start it as a youth team? Is it something that you've only managed? Uh, it is the same uh, project that I started way back uh, in uh, 1998. Uh, it's the same place where Chris Froome also started his uh, cycling career, yeah. So we, we keep it going. Yeah, oh great. Definitely we want to touch on the story with Chris Froome a bit later. But I thought where well, it would be a nice place to start, and this is a story that I came across when I was reading a bit more about you. Could you cast your mind back to the year 2000 when you arrived in France with a bicycle on your, <laughs> a bicycle on your shoulder for the World Time Trial Championships? That bicycle wasn't a TT bike. It was just a road bike, and you borrowed it from the Kenyan Cycling Federation, and they really didn't want to give it away or give it to you to travel with. And you'd shown up to be the 41st competitor out of a field of what was 40 up until that point to ride the time trial. What was going through your mind? Because that must have just been just crazy. And I, and I think, am I right in saying you didn't even know where you were staying? No, I, I, had, no, I had nothing prepared for the accommodation or anything on the actual ground of the war. You know, I was going for a battle 
which I really didn't know much about, but I had actually trained for the road race. My mission was to go there and uh, take the big race by, you know, take the bull by the horns. So I was going for the 256-kilometer road race. That was what I had trained for. I was uh, a good time just back at Kenya. Yes, I was uh, racing in uh, all the races. I was winning everything. Time trial was quite uh, very fit cyclist, but... Uh, for this particular, because it was more of a wild card entry, I was uh, going for the big race. I was not going for uh, a, a one-hour race. You know, I, I wanted to to be where the the big guns were. But then, uh, I when I got there, then uh, I realized I I could not participate in the road race with the rules of the UCI and all that, and I had to take part in the time trial. And I only had my steel tubed uh, road bike, uh, which those days more riders were, even the pros were aluminum bikes. Uh, there was a little bit of entry of uh, serious teams with carbon fiber and kind of, but uh, yeah, I was, I think the only rider with a steel bike and uh, the bike was good for me. I was ready to yeah, to race with that. But for the time trial, then everybody said, oh, you cannot do this with the time trials or a few Friends who were up to help me said, we, we got to find your bike. And uh, that's why I ended up at the French uh, women's team workshop where I, uh, you know, I learned a uh, lady's bike. Wow. And uh, how did the race go for you? And then how did being in that race, because I think it received a lot of media attention at the time, how did that change your cycling career? I think uh, the main reason I got a lot of attention is, uh, one, because... I did a very fast time. The, my time that I did was very much comparable to what the pros were doing. And I was not a pro and I was from Africa. I was a nobody in that race. And then uh, secondly, it was because of the Olympic Games whereby we had uh, this uh, young guy from uh, Equatorial New Guinea who had done the slowest swim in the 100 meters, I, I think. And uh, it was another story of the same, so repeating on the cycling scene. Uh, but then the story did not turn out as, as they thought. Uh, they thought I was going to do a time draw in maybe two hours or something, but I I did an average of 44.7 or something. And uh, this was all. Uh, it was, it was uh, they had to come up with a different story. So the next day I saw myself in the big newspaper with the huge photos of me racing, and uh, it was written in French that uh, Kinja is not a tortoise, he's a rabbit. (laughs) Kinja is a rabbit, not a tortoise. And this is when all the attention now came down. So there was press hunting for me everywhere. When you go home after that back to Kenya, what's that like? Is everyone watched you on the TV and been like, wow, that's amazing, or, or did no one see it? No, there was nothing back home. There was nothing, as in everything was left behind. Until uh, the, the the French uh, three TV came to visit me in Kenya, and uh, they did a big story. And uh, a few weeks later, then Shimano sent uh, a team to come and visit, and they did their story. And then uh, the the beginning of the following year, that is 2001, there was again uh, some uh, thing more French TV and uh, and and Shimano. And then I was, uh, they were going to send me to Australia. So it was all for the European uh, view, viewers. Uh, Kenya was just, it was me and uh, a little bit of my friends. Not even my family knew what was happening. 
What did your family say? Because it rather sounds like you kind of almost did this in in secret, not because you wanted it to be secret, because no one's really thinking, hey, Kinja's going to take a bike and go and race it in France. Yeah, already I was doing a lot of cycling and not not really in secret, but uh, it is how the things was. And I, I picked up a bike after high school just to go to play football because uh, when I finished my high school, I had little savings from my pocket money, you know, and from my, my bus fare to, to go anywhere. So I didn't have any more. So I picked up the cheapest bike I could and I had just learned to ride a bike uh, a few months before that. And I wanted to go to football because that was what every young person of my time was doing. And I started getting into all sorts of problems. But one of the things is that my dad was not to go find out that I am having a, a bicycle and going to the roads. It was going to be trouble for me. So the secret of being a cyclist had started uh, when I was not a, a cyclist yet. So when it came to to racing level, uh, nobody in my family really was noticing anything until I started appearing in some uh, uh, local newspapers and one of my elder brothers uh, started following up a bit. Uh, I, I, they couldn't find me. I was on the move all the time. So I was very unavailable for them. So he had to hand me down sometimes. So when it came to going to the world championship, so it was something that the Federation had to put into the news and newspapers, but they, they did not do that as usual. And I really wanted to go and race outside. I had already done some international races. I was not new to cycling and I was not new to time trial and road races. And I knew exactly how hard and how fast those guys go. I had I had actually raced with some of them in the Commonwealth Games in uh, 1998 in Kuala Lumpur. I did a very, a very strong road race. I had done also a very, very strong time trial. I, I beat lots of uh, riders from the uh, uh, United Kingdom, you know, England and Scotland and Wales. We raced with all these people, Australians, and they always dominate. So, And I remember in, in the road race in Kuala Lumpur, in the 1998, I was actually in the, in the lead for almost three hours in the breakaway, and I was it was not by fluke. I I made it uh, uh, intentionally. I had to to go hard. So even after that, going towards 2000, I was training more and harder, and I knew I want to go to do the road race. But then I found myself on the time trial. I cared less about the news at home or who was following me or not. I didn't even care much about what they were going to write about me in the European magazines or TV or radios. I was going there to do my thing and I had struggled to even get the the air tickets, the visa fees, you know. So I didn't care much where I was going to go sleep or anything. Actually, I spent the first night uh, when when I arrived at uh, Charlie, Charlie de Quen Airport. And then uh, I spent my my first night at the at a refugee center. You know that's where people who are homeless or they don't have don't have uh, accommodation. You go there and get uh, these temporary beddings for a night, and you get a space. And I had to sleep holding my bike and holding my bag. You know, <laughs> but uh, there was people walking in and out all all night through, and they would be. I knew they can steal my stuff. <laughs> So it was uh, it was a different situation for me from what people expected. And how did you go from you say getting that first bike to go and play football to being like racing level and going to like Commonwealth of World Championships? What's how how do you take that big step when it's not a country of cyclists? 
Oh, this this is a very long story. You will need uh, maybe two things to, to listen to it. But... <laughs> so you, you don't want to go that way. But uh, yeah, there was uh, a lot of things that happened along the way that I started falling in love with uh, cycling. But basically, I was a very competitive young young guy. And I was uh, a jack of many sports, but a master of none. And uh, this new sport, which was not a sport yet, it was just me and a bike, and the bike was challenging me, and I I, I, I I, never gave any challenge away to beat me. I was the kind of guy who overcame every challenge, whether by myself or with help, but I, was, I, I had to overcome the challenge. And the challenge was I was having a bike that is breaking down, and I don't know how to fix it. I had to learn. Then I have a flat tire, and I, I realized, so uh, you have to get it fixed. I have to carry it on my shoulder. I walk long distances. And the next day, I have to go to look for uh, a fundi or a mechanic. That's fundi is in mechanic in Kiswahili. And I grew up in Mombasa. So you've got the fundis want money, and they have no money. So I was like, okay, I have to, I have to, I have to hold my whole shit together. So I started by learning how to fix uh, the flat tire. And I learned that I could buy some patches and some glue and cut it with me. And I, 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 one of the big heavy pumps that I had to design and hold it on a frame somewhere. It was a BMX bike, so it was quite a tidy bike. And then later on, I started modifying it to make it uh, more standard that I can fit and ride properly. So it was a new challenge of trying to make a bike be more rideable so that I can go faster. So I started by the seat post, uh, making it longer. And then it was going straight all the way backwards because of the angle. So I, I found that I can bend it. And then when I bend it, I put a saddle. The saddle was swinging from side to side. It could not hold it place. So I had to do some pins. And, and so it, it, didn't, it didn't stop. So I was now spending a lot of time every day trying to do something new to the, to the little bike. And then after a year or so, the bike was a very popular bike all around the streets and in the villages. And it was getting very fast, and I was uh, now passing everybody who was trying to pass me, or somebody passes me, I chase it back and pass. And there was all those very unholy <laughs> competitions of the road, of the road with people you don't even know. And so it went on like that, and I was becoming a good rider and learning about bikes. Now building my own wheels and trying to make them faster, and everything. Reading magazines, admitting a few seasoned cyclists, and asking questions, and getting friends with them. And finally joining them and trying to beat them and becoming better and learning how to go and do some drills and climb and modifying to put gears on this bike and all that. So this one served me and I it, it was something that now challenged, challenged me day by day by day. And there was a lot of things to do on the bicycle and you couldn't get it anywhere. So I stayed, I stayed on the bike. And at some point between having that BMX and eventually ending up being really incredible at cycling and then going to France and taking part in the World Championships. Part of that journey a few years later was then actually joining a European team, Alexia Aluminio, which is um, an Italian team which had Paolo Salvadelli riding for it. So I think in the year you rode, which would be 2003, he may have even won the Giro d'Italia. So it's not just a, a team, it's a really, it's a really good team. How was that experience going from what you've just described, which is you are your own mechanic, you are your own frame builder, you're your own manager, trainer, you are your own athlete, you are your own team, to going into a European, an established Italian 
team, which I imagine has all kinds of traditions as well, and is based in Europe. How did that feel? I, I was expecting a lot of uh, challenges that I was ready to go face and conquer. But uh, I saw this coming. So I was very, very prepared in my mind. The only thing I was not really prepared for is the weather conditions, the cold winter and the wet roads and other view. But I had raced with a lot of good riders in South Africa, in England. I was uh, in Australia because when Shimano sent me to do the crocodile trophy in Australia, so back in the days, that was the, the biggest and the hardest mountain bike race in the world. So it was actually the Tour de France version of mountain biking. And there was very good uh, specialist mountain bikers that I had to face in this race. And uh, actually the guy from Holland who had won this race uh, about four times was there with a very strong team to win again. And uh, so happened that there was this uh, black rider from Kenya who is very badly equipped, but I was very stubborn in the front bunch and I wouldn't let anybody go. So there was uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, stories, uh, even in the magazines, in German magazines, in uh, Dutch magazines and Belgian magazines that well, I had uh, brought up my stories, but people did not about them, especially the people from England, because uh, I wasn't doing much with the uh, English uh, things because like the Crocodile Trophy was organized by the Australian guy who was also an agent for writers for Italian and Spanish and uh, French teams. Uh, his name was uh, Sean Baga, Gerard Sean Baga. And uh, he didn't care much about the English speaking people, you know, he was not connected. The only stories that were about me with the English speaking community were the Commonwealth Games, and that's it. So the Germans and the Austrians, the Italians, and those other Europeans, they didn't know much about me. They they, they are not connected with the English uh, cycling stories, uh, as say, unless you're hitting them or beating the world. So when I went to Italy, it's because of the Crocodile Trophy that I did the. Uh, uh, very well, but, uh, you know, it was tough for me. I almost quit, but, yeah, I ended up finishing uh, seventh overall. I lost a few positions when I stopped for about 50 minutes on stage nine, where I was completely done, but I had to go on. And then uh, when Shimano was sponsoring me for this stuff, and they also offered a lot of equipment to the Kenyan Federation so that they can take up my federation, uh, my projects and uh, raise raise more strong young riders from that. Uh, the federation was not interested and Shiman was getting very frustrated that the uh, federation was treating them very badly. And to me, uh, this was more of a concern that we have finally a European company or a sponsor, which is bicycle component maker Shimano, which is huge in the world really wanting to support my project through the Federation, but the Federation is really frustrating them with all their politics and rubbish. And this was so much of concern to me. So anything else I was prepared for, everything else for me was just simple. Just go there and do what you have to do. So the Italian team wanted me to go immediately to Italy to join the team because they actually sent two riders 
to come and train with me uh, in Kenya. That was at the end of, of their season. That was the, in October. So the guys, uh, they had only one, one uh, I think they had only one main reason to come from their boss. And their reason was to come and ride with me as much as possible and find out for their boss if I was a rider who could join their team or I was just somebody that people are talking about. So their work was mainly to come and find out how good a rider I am on the road. So they send them with a road bike. So when they came here, I took them to my road rides and tough roads, and it was very hard for them in Kenya. You know, it was everything was super hard, and I I made it hard for them because they they wanted to know if I can ride. So I took them to tough roads and long roads, and you know, I I drove them hard. So when they immediately went back after three weeks, they said to their boss, "You oh, know, that, that guy is just wasting his time in Kenya. He should be here." So the boss sent air tickets and everything. They said, come, come now, come now. We, we're preparing the team for, for next year. So I had to quickly make a, build up an agency here in Kenya and assign, assign a friend of mine to be my agent. And he did all the communication. And I went to, to Italy in Bergamo. And uh, the house was in the mountains, you know. And it was the beginning of winter. And uh, in, a, in a two months' time, I was in shit. I had nothing for winter. You know, I was... I come from a equatorial, you know, equator country, though. It's, it's different. You know, our, our winter in Kenya, which is June, July, I can, I can still walk around with a t-shirt. Not in Italy, you know, even, even riding a bicycle, you know, my, my toes and my fingers and the hands were feeling like uh, clubs. It was really tough situation. Yeah. What a massive shock. Unfortunately, though, it was an amazing situation for you to find yourself in. But it didn't last, did it? Alexia Aluminio folded the following season. Did you? Were you kind of aware of how things were going, looking with the team? Was that a surprise to you? Did you think, it's fine, I'm going to get picked up by another team? Like, what, what were the feelings there and what happened after that season with this Italian team? Yeah, um, as I said, I was quite aware of everything that goes on. I had, I had a lot of information. I was already the leader of my projects uh, here at home and... I was going actually to represent them and, you know, not to gather much knowledge, but to be part of what we see in the magazines. So I was going there to be part of that so that we could be more of a, of a force back home. The other thing is that the, the boss of the team, that is Petro Petrusi, he was really, he was really positive about me. He liked me when, when I joined the team and, when the other riders uh, came for the winter training and we were in the house and, uh, you know, I taught them lots of stuff, actually. It was the other way around. I realized most of those professional riders, they were not very good in skillful stuff, like even using the Allen Keys problem. They are more just so professional riders. Their work is to ride. So they, some of them had their bikes sitting in the boxes because they're new bikes. You know, they're waiting for the mechanics. They were, they were going to just ride their old bikes. And uh, we were going to stop riding Kopi and we were going to ride Bianchi. So I was already building up some of those bikes and I didn't have all the tools because most of the mechanics are professional. They come with their tools, they go with their tools. So I was doing a lot of improvising and I I was building the bikes already, putting parts together and, you know, and even uh, I did the measurement for the riders. And when finally the mechanics came, I remember the main mechanic was, uh, he, he was really amazed that, we already achieved a lot of uh, work with very little tools. 
There was uh, the person who was doing that with the riders, and you know, every rider had two uh, two bikes assigned, one for training, one for racing. So there was a lot of things that I was doing with the riders even before the officials came. Also, uh, the stretching and uh, in-house training that we did without equipment, you know, like uh, strength and conditioning stuff. And I was teaching them a lot. So I was I was uh, getting a lot of positive uh, feedback from. Uh, the boss, because these riders would go and say to the boss, oh, this African guy, he knows this, he knows that. We did this, we did that. And uh, yeah, I, I was a guy who was used to doing things for myself. You know, if it's washing dishes and whatever. So I was living the, the same kind of life. So I was connecting with lots of riders and they liked me being around. And then when we officially started riding and training and joining other teams in training, I was uh, very strong on the climbs and even the pure climbers were having difficult times dropping me. They had to convert the training into racing <laughs> so that they can uh, gang up on me and uh, <laughs> hit me. Yeah, so when the stories of uh, the new UCI roles started coming up, I, I was already in in knowledge of what's going to happen. There was the... The biggest problem was the economy of Europe during that time in 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, because of the euro. So many countries were joining the euro, uh, European Union, and they were ditching their currencies. So the Germans had to stop using their Deutschmark. The Italians had to stop using their Lira. The Belgians had to stop their Belgian franc and the Dutch Gilda with the Holland. And uh, yeah, many companies were margering and banks were operating differently. So this was now trickling down to cycling because cycling is supported by monies from these uh, uh, companies and banks and factories. And it, it was not easy for many, many teams, but uh, especially for Bianchi because we were the only pro team together with the Yal Ulrich team uh, that were riding the Bianchi bikes for the big tours and the big races. So Giro d'Italia and the Tour de France, among many other tours. So Ulrich had left uh, Telecom and he had uh, come up with their own team that he was the the, the leader with the new sponsor, Team Coast. And uh, they were riding exactly the same bikes we were riding, only the, the color match was a bit uh, different. That was the Bianchi Evolution 3. So when our team was folding down, and also the team cost was folding. We had the new sponsor, Europea, so the team changed from Index Alexia to Index Europea, but the guy also was only going to commit the budget for the full year in three pieces, so not all of them together. But the UCI rules also were in, inflicting damage to the teams, and there was uh, a lot of uh, professional riders who wanted to move to other teams, and uh, other riders who had moved to other teams, but they had allowances and their salaries are in arrears from other teams. And the UCI also wanted to try and stop this. So one of the rules was that all the Division One teams had to present their full budget for the year and prove it by confirming their account balances and and all the money for the whole year for the team and all the rider salaries in the bank. And uh, many teams were not able to do that. So the, the team was was reduced from 18 riders to 12 riders so we can present at least uh, almost a full budget. So the UCI accepted it, but then we were converted to a Division 2 team, not a Division 1. So 
we were given operating license for Division Two, and uh, the new sponsor was very angry. He was not going to sponsor a Division Two team. He, his money was for a Division One team, and he was going to pump enough money for a Division One team. But the UCI rules were that. So the sponsor pulled out, and what happened? So the boss tried to only maintain nine riders for the big tours. So he had to reduce the riders so that he can present the budget yard. But the UCI said, no, the, the time is going up, so we're going to give you only uh, one more month, and you have to be clear with all this. So they actually gave space, but it didn't happen. They didn't get the, all that money. That, so the team folded away. But still, the, the boss wanted to keep me because I was still in the top of the nine riders. So he wanted me to join... The, the team that Bianchi was sponsoring on the mountain bike, it was called a Bianchi, Motorex Bianchi. Uh, but again, I was in Europe to do the big tours and to race on the road. I was not much interested on mountain bikes. But also because the Motorex Bianchi had only a team of six riders and they had completely different management and different budget. So I had to be squeezed in there. So I was almost yes, but... There was no space. And then a, uh, a friend of mine from Belgium calls and he says, Dave, don't go back to Kenya. We need you in Belgium. We have a, a team for you, but it's not a professional team, but we're going to give you allowances and the home. And uh, we want you in Belgium. So I moved to Belgium. And uh, when I was in Belgium, another call comes. And these guys from Holland say, David, we have a better deal for you. We need you in Holland. So I said, you have, you have to come and talk to the guys in Belgium. I haven't signed anything with them. But the guys in the Holland were the guys, uh, one of the team that was in the Crocodile Trophy in uh, 2001. So they they were following me. And they were, they, really, they were making up a team sponsored by Giants and they had everything set up. So after a month or two, I moved to Holland. I, I had a job to do during the morning hours. So I was kind of a semi-pro. I had a job to do during the morning hours and all afternoon I had to ride. Uh, but they also... They had the equipment, the bikes and everything, but the money never came up. <laughs> yeah, it was a problem. So, so I did a few races in Europe. I did uh, criteriums and a few camis. I, do, I did a few regional races. I performed quite well. I had my Bianchi bike. And then uh, I met this guy in uh, one of the mountain bike races in Germany. And he was Kevin Vermark, the founder of uh, Cape Epic, now the biggest mountain bike race in the world. And uh, he talked to me and he said, I need you in South Africa. I have a, a deal for you, you know? So <laughs> I, my, my presence in, in Europe did not uh, just uh, waste, you know, there was good things. So in some senses, although it didn't quite work out in Europe, it did mean you went back to Africa. And that probably meant, if I'm looking at the timeline, that a certain young Chris Froome benefited a lot from the fact that you returned home. So you touched upon it at the beginning. A lot of people will, will know you from a racing career, but they'll also know you as the guy who mentored Chris Froome, you know, Britain's most successful Grand Tour rider ever. So can you tell us how, I think you're, I don't know, would you, would you have been about 20, 22 years old? How you racing a bike at maybe 22 years old ended up meeting a young white kid who's maybe 12 who's really keen on cycling. But how did, you, how did you meet and how did you end up forging a relationship where you became yeah, his mentor and his coach? 
Yeah, when I met Chris Room, I was uh, close to my 30s, actually. I was in, I think I was 30, yeah, 30-something. But I had already met him before I went to Europe. I had already started uh, riding with him, but uh, only when I came back uh, after my short stay in, in Europe, uh, we really started uh, doing some, some serious rides. Uh, I remember we had one race, which was at the end of, of the year. Actually, it was first of December. And because uh, of the uh, HIV AIDS scourge that had affected lots of countries in Africa back then, uh, we had uh, a lot of organizations doing a lot of uh, charitable work and community work in regard to the uh, AIDS couch. And uh, for this reason, we had the World AIDS Day, which is 1st of December. And we used to have our biggest end of the year race, which was kind of a final of all the races. And I had won that race like four times in a row before I went. And uh, I was also one of the advisors and organizer for the race even when I went. Away, I still uh, advised. I was actually sending uh, money home to the, the project, to the guys that I had left at the project that they can sustain the project. So when I, I remember when I, I came back and I had the most expensive bicycle in Kenya, that was the Biagi Evolution 3. <laughs> and uh, I was feeling unfair racing with it. So when we did this race, I just decided to take off and... Uh, go away on my own and leave the, the guys behind to race their own race. So I took off only about uh, after 12 kilometers, after organizing everybody in the bunch. And I was, I was a little bit of a bully. So I took off and I went and for the next 140 kilometers on my own in front and I won the race and I organized the food and drinks for the other riders, especially my project riders. So when they arrived like 48 minutes later, <laughs> I had them made everything possible. And I think this is uh, one of the stories that uh, the young Chris Room was uh, following. Uh, he heard about, and uh, he was uh, he was the kind of young boy who you wouldn't really tell what he's thinking or what he knows. He just keeps quiet with his things, but his ambitions, you could literally see them. You know, you could you could literally see the determination in his eyes. You know, and, uh, I was uh, getting to like to like him because he wasn't afraid to mingle in the village where there was hardly no white people come, and the the poor villages where every other person, even the adults, thinks that when you see a white person, then this is the this the sole solution to all the problem. You know, white people means money. You know, give me money, give me something. You know. So it wasn't easy for, for young Chris Froome to be in the village where everybody would be looking at him like this and wondering what is this white little boy doing here. Well, but he was the, quite smart and uh, he, he coped up. And for these reasons, uh, we liked him. And he was hanging about and wanted to join our rides and we would do small, smaller rides for him. I tried to turn him back and he would refuse. They would insist to go. And uh, then his his mom tried to control him so that he can uh, focus more on studies because he was going to go and join an academy in South Africa. But uh, she couldn't. So she joined the, the club also. So Chris's mom became like the, the manager of the things I was doing. So she would uh, organize 
uh, ride that there was a, a vehicle and some food and water and drinks. And then Chris Room would be there. And then when he's really tired, the plan was to put him in the car. And then the senior riders like myself continue with the ride. But every time we would refuse to go in the car. And uh, this became the norm. Uh, so at some point, the mom was getting used to Chris from being away from home and just riding out there with King and the boys. And she, did, she didn't panic much. And for this reason, Chris from was much more ambitious and much more determined, much more confident because the mom is not around. And uh, yeah, when he actually went to South Africa, he was a very strong and fast young rider. And because he had learned to do everything like we do, we, we fix everything, you know, we don't depend on mechanics, we to do our bikes, we do everything. Uh, we don't depend on coaches, we coach ourselves. We don't depend on nutritionists. So he, he was very smart. So when he went to South Africa, we were, we were talking because um, by now I had a mobile phone. And when he went to South, South Africa, we kept start in touch like every time. And uh, he said, you know, there is, it was quite amazed that there was a lot of cycling in South Africa. But, but I used to tell him because at first he didn't want to go to South Africa. But his mom and his dad had parted ways and his dad was uh, had established his business in South, South Africa, was doing well. And he said to the Chris's mom, yeah, the boy has to come to South Africa because uh, there's very good schools here and I will sponsor him to school here. But Chris Froome was too much into cycling that he didn't want to go. So I had to convince him. There's, there's a lot of good cycling in South Africa and I used to go to South Africa and race a lot. But he, he, didn't, he didn't agree to it until he went there and he saw. And we would talk on Ford and we, he'd be laughing that the kids of his age, they don't understand anything about bikes. He was so good for the kids of his age. And then so happened the school he joined, they had a cycling club, which he quickly became the captain because he could do everything on bikes. And so from there, he was in a situation like mine. He was riding from the front. He was leading. And his uh, club at school, I think, started doing well in school competitions. And he was understanding a lot of uh, good mountain biking and he was strong. And then he joined road biking and would, would come back to Kenya immediately the school's closes so that he continues his uh, secret training in Kenya. And, and this way went on for a long time until he joined the first uh, pro pro team in South Africa. That was the Connie Caminota was John and later on the Balo World and so on. So the story, you know, the Balo World is a team with the Robert Hunter that first uh, brought him to, to Europe. But uh, along the way he had... He had managed to be noticed by the UCI uh, in South Africa and uh, through the in intervention with myself and the Kenyan Federation, we managed to get Chris from to the UCI Cycling Centre in Switzerland. And uh, from there, when uh, he did the World Championships also in Austria, where he knocked down uh, one of the uh, marshals, I think. And so the, the stories, you know, the stories from there are, more people know, you know, there were, there were stories now written from there. Yeah. A lot of other stories that we knew that Chris Froome uh, was a very brilliant writer, they were never written. So we know, like the 12 Mauritius, which he won, and uh, he had done twice the first time. They they, they legged him out of, out of the podium position, but when he won the first time, he actually would have won the tour and the best young rider, but... Yeah, because he was a nobody and nobody expected him to be that fit and fast. So they they, they did some corruption. They put him uh, on the fourth, fourth place. But he went back and won the Tour Mauritius 
I had won the King of the Mountains. I had won the Red Jersey, the most aggressive rider. And uh, I had also almost won the Green Jersey in the tour. You know, there was there was many things that we used to, to connect with with Chris Roman. Our training ground was in Kenya. And the best thing about training in Kenya is nobody noticed us. It was no stories coming out of Kenya. So it was every time we go out, we're like, oh, who are these guys? Like a lot of riders, I've tried loads of training plans, but I often find them too rigid and complicated. But join is a bit different. You put in your availability to train each week and your goal, like riding the ATAP, for example, and then join reverse engineers a training plan specific to your needs. But the really smart thing is how join adapts your training plan as you go. So if you miss a session or you end up doing like a recovery ride or it's an interval day, then join retailers your training plan so you can still hit your goal. It's really simple to use and workout sync to everything from Garmin's and Wahoo's to Strava and Zwift. Or you can pair join to a power meter or smart trainer for instant workouts. Join comes as an app. And right now, listeners of the Cyclist Podcast can save a third on a six-month join subscription. So that's six months for the price of four. Just check out the link in our show notes and start training with join. So how how crucial do you think growing up in Kenya with the landscape and the terrain and the elevation and the temperature and also growing up in a way where you had to be so self-sufficient. How crucial was that to, say, the development of Chris Froome? Could he have been the rider that he was if he had just been part of a team in, in the UK or if he'd been riding in Switzerland as part of the UCI's sort of cycling academy? What I know is that uh, human beings have got a tendency to be strong when they're faced by challenges, and especially people who come from very tough backgrounds, then they can be very good athletes when they are guided properly. And this was the case that uh, our cycling situation in Kenya was difficult situation compared to what other youngsters got in Europe. But we were very determined, and this is the driving force. But uh, alongside the determination that we had, it was also the freedom that uh, we we had our own uh, characters and with our own characteristics, and we had our own very good share of uh, laughs and jokes and everything. And we didn't, we didn't care much, no, but we were determined. We know if we need to go race our dates very hard. And uh, we embraced the situation that, okay, here we have not the best bikes. We have heavy bikes and tires and all that situation, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, but this is positive for us. So we worked with the mentality that we are better off the way we are. You know, we... Let's do our hard rides, and whenever we get a chance, let's give it our best. And uh, this is this is what Chris from character became. You could see, even when he was uh, living in South Africa, he he did his own bikes. You know, he would go to cycle lab and get a day job when he was still a student, and he was he would fix bikes, clean bikes, and then he ended up even taking a class coaching in one of the spin classes because he easily understood how to do these things. And he made some money. So he was already making some money when he was in school. And he carried this with him. And I'm sure even when he he finally joined the big teams in Europe, he, he had these characteristics. So he he's not afraid. He's, 
is determined but also confident that he's, he can handle things by himself. And uh, when he compares himself and what he knows and what he can do to other cyclists of, of the same level who have come up through more uh, supported systems, like you have a mechanic, a manager, a nutritionist, or maybe your family has been supporting you. So they are tough riders, is, but based on proper support. And Chris Froome is a tough rider, but based on his own support. So those are two different riders. You know, that's that's what we are, and that's what he, he became. Yeah. So looking at the professional peloton now and thinking about uh, the young riders coming through, I'm assuming someone like Biniam Gomez sticks out as still being only one of a few black African riders in a sport where you look at any other sport in the world and there are lots of black Africans, or more to the point, there are lots of people who aren't just white European. Does seeing someone like Biniam racing, does that give you hope there could be and there should be and there will be more diversity? Or do you think it just represents the fact that there almost never will be? You know, we're in 20, going into 2024 and we still don't have like many successful, well-supported black African riders. Yeah, that, so you have the, uh, the, the, the question and the answer right there. So you just answer it. You know, for for every one good black rider who is at a professional level, there's possibly hundreds of white riders with the same age, same level. For every one good black rider who can race in Europe, there's probably 200 or 300 on the other side. And that's that's it. That's that's why it is. That's that's what it is, you know. And 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 cycling in Europe is nobody's setting up cycling in Europe to be for this for the black riders. You know, there's it's it's hard. Yeah, I normally say that's that's not your grandmother's home. You know, when you when you 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 going to, to join pro ranks and you think, oh, so I'm here now, it's easy. No. Life in Europe is hard. It's full of shit. And and lots of young riders here we are trying to easily and slowly show them that you know it's you know we're not looking towards europe you're looking we're looking here we we would like africa to be like europe because then we can start equalizing the numbers so for every one good african rider maybe there are three or four european riders and they're bringing the numbers closer to the equality so for every one good black rider there's two good european riders of the same age same level and in the future, then can be 50-50. Because on the running side, like Kenya is a running country with a footballing problem, you know, that was it. We see that you put Europeans with the Kenyan runners and it's the other way around. For yeah. every one European runner in a marathon, there's probably 20 Kenyans at home who can, you know, who can learn much better than him. And that's the situation. That's the way it is. You know, not looking at the scientific facts, facts like uh, genetics or slow twitch fast muscles. No, because cycling is actually a sport which has over the years evolved to integrate all sorts of muscles. Take for instance pure pure climbers. You know, they have slow twitch muscles, but they are also smaller people in lighter weight. You take for the sprinters, which have to do the same races as the climbers. They have to go over the same mountains as the climbers, but you bring them to the line and you see the power of fast twitch muscles. Big guys, big muscles, big power. But there's also the other guys in the medium who you call all-rounder, like Chris Froome. He's not really a sprinter. He's not really a climber, but he's an all-rounder. 
he would go fast on a timetable bike, you know, but he cannot really sprint that fast. He will go up the hills very, very fast. <laughs> so now this becomes the rider who can win the Grand Tours because it's all about the mathematics. Now here, that's where the brains and the team support comes in. In Africa, we need to have a lot of projects and we have to build the pool of our young riders to be more and more so that we have a chance to recruit more talents. When you go to Eritrea, it's a small country. Why does it pro produce maybe 70% of all the black good riders? Yeah, because the situation of the country is fast. They are supported by the Italians a lot, so they know a lot about the sport of cycling. It has been in traditions. So uh, the, this, the riders you see here, the Grimei and the Hennocks and the Muluban and all this uh, Mu, uh, Mulu and... Uh, they are fourth, fifth generation of uh, serious riders, so nobody talked about because they didn't make any reference for European uh, stories. But they've been riding very hard. And secondly, you look at the situation of the country. Only the sports can take these young riders out. Nothing else. Nothing. Either you're a diplomat working for the government, you can go out of the country, or you're a very, very good sports person, and you're going to, re to represent your country. They've been in war. So either you join the military or stay at home and die at home, marry at home. So these guys have learned to work very, very, very hard on their bicycles to get out of the country. And that is why out of everyone who the Eritrean who is racing in Europe, there is maybe 10 who have run away and they came as cyclists. So given what you were saying about um, just balancing the sheer numbers of people, just getting more people involved in cycling in Africa that otherwise might not be. How important is the 2025 World Championships in Rwanda? Do you think that's going to help or is that just a distraction where, you know, the UCL will come along, put on a race, people will race it, they'll be white and then they'll go home again? So you see that, no, that's a different situation which uh, can explain itself very well. So a few African countries have uh, been very likely to have phenomenal leaders, so like President Kagame of Ristat. I've been in Rwanda when he was starting to build up, and uh, I raised the tour of Rwanda in 2006. Uh, it was already a tour that had a long history because of the French, so the French supported that and the Belgians. And these were riders, they had a tradition that the tour was there every year, and it was so big and important for them, for the Rwandans and Ugandans and Tanzanians and Burundi and Congo riders. And no team from other countries would go there and beat the Rwandans in their, in, in their tour. So they've always won. And one of the reasons I went to, to Rwanda to do the tour of Rwanda is because I believed I need to go and support what good is happening in Africa. But also I needed to show to my federation because I, they, they banned me for five years after the Commonwealth Games. I was banned for five years, illegally, of course. And uh, Chris from this is... This is when Chris Froome also decided he has, he has to think to go to, to change his uh, passport to English because he, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't going to be a cyclist for Kenya in this situation. But he has Kenya in his heart, just like the rich. You know, he knows he's a Kenyan. You know? So I was going to, to Rwanda, uh, to race in Rwanda, to support the tour of Rwanda and the, the, the young people there and the people who every year support that tour and uh, work it out but also to show the Federation that there's other countries who would embrace us, what we are and what we are becoming, but we have to join them. And uh, also to show the Federation that 
you have no control of our sport. You know, we, I can ride wherever I want. You know, I, I don't need to be in a federation. You ban me for five years, 10 years, 20 years, no problem. I will still ride my bike. I will still race where I want, you know. And I knew that I can always apply to the UCI to do whatever races I want to because the federation is so August. So I went to the under the rules that we have to be a team of six. I couldn't get uh, six riders to go with me because of the budgets and stuff. So I took the next best rider who could ride hard. And our mission was to win the 12 Rwanda because nobody had won the 12 Rwanda. There had been teams from Kenya in the past, even before I started cycling, who had gone to Rwanda. That was in 1980s and early 1990s who had gone to Rwanda and many times, but they, they couldn't even win the stage. So I went there with uh, my teammates and uh, we won every stage. Only out of the 10 stages, we missed one stage because those Rwanda boys, they put uh, needles in our tires in the, no way. In the type you see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we were, we were now friends and they, some of them even told us, be careful with your bikes tomorrow. There's plans for them to puncture them because this is the only time to race and you you guys, you know, that nobody was gonna pit me in the time trial in, in the whole tour. I was I was the best time trials and they knew it. So the only thing was to sabotage and they actually they did that. We we thought it was a joke, but we had track tires, me and my partner, we just <laughs> in the time trial. Man, wow. Yeah, but then the next day was the last stage and we punished it. We really punished it. And until today, we have left a legacy in Rwanda because after that they really realized that they have to think beyond the box. They had not to content with what they had. We actually made the Rwandan Federation think twice, and this is also when the government started now pushing. You know, who are these two Kenyans came and beat the Rwandans? Because all the Rwandans will come out to the road to see the tour. But there was two Kenyans who just took everything. And where are they from? Just from the neighborhood country in Kenya. And nobody in Rwanda ever thought that Kenyans can ride a bike. Leave alone and beat them, you know. <laughs> so it was it was things that we knew, but they didn't. But also looking at the history of the genocide and what happened in Rwanda. And now the president coming up and realizing, no, there's power in sport in grooming our young people. And he put emphasis also in sports. And then lucky enough, this guy, uh, Tom Ritchie, I, I think he was in your podcast as well. Yeah, he went in South Africa in the Cape Epic and we discussed and he had my stories and riders, he said, actually... I am starting something in Rwanda. I don't want you there. I, I, he, he wanted me to go to relocate to Rwanda and uh, set up the project like I was running in Kenya with him. I said, no, I cannot relocate, but I will work with you and I will go to Rwanda every now and then and we'll make a plan. So the next year when he came to the Cape Epic, we sat down again and he invited to go to Rwanda with him, but I was traveling to Norway. I think I was going to Norway to do some rides there with uh, some clubs. So I did not go, but uh, he actually offered to pay me to be uh, the English spokesperson because he was mobilizing a group of uh, uh, American supporters for the project. And he also ended up bringing Jock Boyer. Uh, you know, Jock Boyer, he was the first American writer to wear the yellow jazz. So he brought uh, Jock Boyer and with the help of the government and Tom Rich, you can see what they have achieved. So your question, uh, what will the world champions mean to us uh, here in Kenya and Africa continents or not only Rwanda? It is that this is just one of the significant events that we want. You know, the question will be, how long will it take before 
we have another African championship, maybe not in Rwanda, maybe in Kenya, South Africa, or Morocco, or Nigeria, or Congo, or Ghana, or, you know, but the capabilities for them to host those kind of level needs local leaders who can be in the mentality of Kagame. But how many of those do you have in Africa? So, you know, you have problems that we have to face ourselves as Africans. So the, the answer to your question is, there is not much that will be achieved by the hosting the world championships. It will come, it will happen, it will go, and things will go back to normal. But the clubs and the scientists, the young people, there will be a few young people who will be left with these things in their images, in their minds, what they saw, especially in Rwanda. Okay, and for us who plan to go there and to watch and to visit, the stories that we're going to give to our uh, upcoming youngsters, okay? Now, it will be us to take this energy and try to use it as much as possible because it's not an energy that is going to last long, okay? So it's a good thing, yes, but the better thing is the 12 Rwanda that happens every year, every year, every year. That's much better. That's a better impact. Brings riders who are not too managed, they can inter in interact, and they can stay and they can ride and the local riders riding. But the world championships, even the Rwandans, will not ride if they don't qualify. Only a few will be given a chance. The Kenyans will not run unless they qualify. The Congo riders, the Tanzania riders, the Uganda are same. But the two of Rwanda can actually give these youngsters and their local teams to participate along the alongside the big riders. And it's, it's not a one-day race, but a multiple-day race. So what I would say is that we should push for the creation of many more tours to of Kenya, to Uganda, blah, 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 and find these European groups or European organizations who really want to support Africa to pump money into those tours because the government in Africa will not, and the sponsors that we have here in Africa with the indigenous companies and making money, some of them very rich, they don't understand that until we bring it to their understanding. So we're still dependent a lot on the European support because the Europeans know the meaning of these things and the impact. And they're the only one who can pump the party. So I would create the two of Kenya, but all the money support come from Europe. Same to, to the two of Rwanda, unless we have other countries coming up with their own governments and doing the same and pumping government money into raising because the only reason we're having the two of Rwanda happening and the world championship coming to Rwanda is because of the level of the country, the work that the president has done to raise that country to that level that they can actually host the world championships, that the UCI delegation comes, checks out, they see the Tour de France happening, I mean the Tour de Rwanda happening and everything, and they realize, okay, yeah, we can let this happen. But this, there's very few other countries in Africa can do that. They don't even have a tour. We have some smaller tours there in, in West Africa, we have Tour de Faso, we have uh, Amisa Bongo. But you can see also now what's happening. You know, those are Francophone countries and they're supported by French. But you see now there's revolution. There's sh shit happened. So there is not much hope if that goes on. It's it's a political situation, just like what is happening with the with the Palestine and Israel. And you can now see the, the politics checking down to Chris Froome and the riders. And it's, it's, it's rubbish. Yeah, I mean, this is it. Sport is not just sport sometimes. It's also political and it has its roots 
deep in politics too. So yeah, I, I, I can entirely, entirely see where you're coming from. David, thank you so much for, for joining us. I just wanted to ask you before I let you go, where are you at at the moment in terms of cycling? Because you're obviously still heading up Safari Simbas, but you're also as a, a kind of ambassador or kind of like ride leader for Ride Africa. Could you tell me a bit about Ride Africa? Yeah, um, we do a lot of uh, stuff on the grassroots here, but uh, as I said, you know, they, they are not reported. We have our own many stories. And uh, one of the stories is actually the Ride Africa. The, the organization called the Child.org actually does a lot of good work with the mothers, especially single mothers and women in the villages uh, in terms of uh, maternal services and uh, taking care of how they can take care of their little children and uh, also the pregnant women and all that sort of education, but also empowering them with skills or projects that can help them sustain themselves and their families. Because uh, there is also a lot of uh, single parents and most of the time this end up to be the women. So the fathers, basically young men, uh, run away from their Father and fatherly duties because of the hardships. So the women are, are left uh, again struggling with these kids. And this project is uh, a very, it makes a lot of sense to me because these are the same young people that we deal with. We're doing our cycling coaching and, and our development through the Parasimbas. So we don't basically think about making the next Chris Boom or just producing more great riders, but we actually based our project on developing skills. And this is why the bike mechanics and they have to be reliable riders, as in every one of our senior riders can handle bikes, riding, training, coaching, fixing, mechanics, building. And that, that's one quality of a Simba because the Simba is the lion. You have to be a king. When you handle the bicycle and you're in a cycling, so the cycling is our forest and we are the reliance in this forest. We have to be the kings. <laughs> So it's the same thing I believe the child that all does at making champions out of these women and when they're bringing up their young children, whether they are young boys or young girls, that they can embrace the spirit of uh, facing the challenges and learning skills and getting themselves sustainable. And uh, Ride Africa, I uh, have got lots of, lots of friends now in, in Ireland and uh, we, we, we cope very well because... The most 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 of the leaders have ridden bicycles before, and when they come and join the Safari Simbas in Kenya, they, we make a great team. You know, we have best mechanics, best leaders, best tour guides, and we can handle uh, huge groups of non-competitive cyclists and take them through uh, the ride and showcase our country and share stories and everything. And it, it's it's a project that also empowers the Simbas through work that we get employment. And if we can have a lot more organization doing that and realizing that the Simbas, they're not only racing cyclists, but they're clever guys. They can handle guests. They can uh, work on bikes. They can guide. They they know how to to read and write and everything. And they can communicate and they do a great job. And and, and I, I believe uh, Ride Africa and Child of Dog are very, very happy with us. And we are really willing to continue working with them and partner with them for the great work they do. And uh, all the ambassador of the Ride Africa in, in uh, Ireland and England, you know, we, we really appreciate 
their recognition for the Safari Simbas and their support that they give us. Fantastic. Kinja, thank you so much um, for joining us on the Cyclist Magazine podcast. It's been brilliant to chat to you and an absolute honour to talk to possibly the reason why cycling in Britain is such a big deal because you helped make Chris Froome and he helped make cycling really quite famous. So, Kinja, thank you so much. Great. Thanks to you guys. David Kinja, ladies and gentlemen, and a wonderful guest, but also a very patient man because we did have a few technical difficulties. Um, and I hope you guys have stuck with it as well and have been patient because I know that the sound quality wasn't as amazing as we'd like it to be, but we are literally coming from almost the other side of the world. It's worth it. It was worth it. But I did particularly enjoy his story about showing up in France for the world's you know, without the right bike, in inverted commas, as in without a time trial bike, although he had the right bike for the road race, but as discussed, wasn't allowed into the road race. And then everything that followed. And it got me thinking, it got me wondering, Will, because you're a man who does, I think, fly by the seat of your pants, let's say. So you, you like a cat, you like milk, and you fly by the seat of your pants, and also you have nine lives. You seem like you may have been underprepared for a few things in your time and just about scraped through. How's that happened? How's that worked out for you? Well, I'd probably argue I've been underprepared for most things in my time. Uh-huh. Uh, and flying, the only flying I do enjoy is by the seat of my pants. What is the seat of your pants? Um, it's your backside. Yeah, I guess so. But then surely you can be a bit more specific than the pants anyway. It's where you put your squeaky bum. Yeah. Uh, so my example, I've done one marathon, the London one. Obviously, you know you've got to prepare. I'm quite a... Judging by what I've just said, you probably wouldn't be surprised. I do my preparation last minute for most things. You can't do that for said events. So I, you know, I got really prepared too early in the year, and this was a year when it was an October marathon. And then sort of got ahead of myself. Got was in really good place in about March, maybe even February. Then it's like, oh no, things happen. Work happen. Work trips. You know what about work trips, James? We go and ride bikes in nice places, but it's not necessarily ideal marathon preparation. So then I crammed for the marathon. You know did all my things that I should do, but it wasn't ideal. But when you turn up on the day, I was in the right place. I knew I'd get through it. And then I see, stood two rows away from me in the little starting pen, there's a bloke with a whole loaf of saurine <laughs> eating it moments before setting off to run 26.2 miles. And I made me feel a lot better about myself with my little SIS beta fuel endurance chew bars and he's there with a big chunk of soaring which if i did that i think it would be maybe 10 seconds before i got stitch i'd and you know less i'd say absolutely less soaring i'm just looking it up the uh calories in soaring i can't help but think he's probably consumed more calories on the start line than he needs for two marathons <laughs> yeah they, they are Nice and carby. They are nice and carby. Slow release cards. You know what one of the best I mean sorry, just to you know, just to acknowledge that story. I hear you, man. Great story. Yeah. Great story, bro. And uh yeah, I understand that preparing for a marathon is probably very difficult. So well done. Well done for doing a marathon. Um well done for standing up next to that man and then telling his story. Because we yeah. all need to tell well, if he's listening, yeah. Fair play. Yeah, fair play. Did you know do you know if he got around? No idea. Probably won it. <laughs> probably, yeah. Probably a long way past me. It's probably a soaring sponsored athlete. Well, if soaring sponsor athletes, please get in touch. My email is readily available. <laughs> I'm more than interested, especially the banana ones. 
Do they make banana they ones? They're incredible. They do. And James, it will change your life. Really? Do you, do you, would you consider slicing and toasting the saurine with butter? Oh, yeah. I wouldn't do that if I'm taking them out and about as an athlete. But no. in the comfort of my own home, absolutely. Absolutely. What's your favourite sort of non-cycling specific? I mean, as in, yeah, your favourite cycling snack food that isn't some special energy engineered product? It's funny you should say that. I've, uh, I've been trying to cut down on snacking this year. Because... Okay. You can snack on the bike. That's fine. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. But my excuse doesn't necessarily... I've been told I use it too much. You know, I need to eat extra because, you know, exercise. Yeah. So I've been buying less because the trick, obviously, to not snack is to not buy snacks. But then uh, I had some uh, of those guava bar things, luchos, whatever they're called, oh, yeah. around the house. Yeah. And I was really desperate, home alone. And the inner workings of the, uh, the devil on my shoulder says, so in I go. And bloody hell, they're good. They're just really good. And actually, for a snack, as someone who basically likes Moorish things, which is obviously bad for someone who likes a snack. As in Moorish, the, the, the people, the, the sort of indigenous group to <laughs> yeah, the Sierra exactly. Nevada. <laughs> exactly. Um, they're really nice and they're not Moorish, so if I have one, I'm content with one and I'm sufficiently snacked. Probably because they're filling as well. Interesting, yeah. But like, for example, I have chocolate biscuit. I want to eat about six more at least. Yeah, no, that's. I mean, that's true. If it is home week, that's a biscuit that you can just keep going on. Yeah, and for the purposes of, of James, I'm showing him the packet. You can Google them. They're called Guava Energy Blocks by Luchos. The, these particular ones, you can, their other brands are available. And apparently they're just buying them from the wholesalers anyway. That's what I've heard. But don't quote me on that. Oh, we're not going to get sponsored by Luchos now, are we? No, because I'm hoping Blown to really go in for this Saurian thing. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. Luchos, Luchos Herrera was, of course, um, one of the first Colombian cyclists in the world tour. It's probably why they're called that. I think it's a Colombian-style snack. It is. It's a product of Colombia. It says it on the box. Puyui could de Colombia, as I would say. <laughs> <laughs> well... I don't. I can't beat that. I was just going to say, I like a, I like a pork pie or a scotch egg. I also like. I mean, you know what? You should try. Yeah. Let's finish it on this. Okay. This other recommendation. A battered, a battered pork pie. Bre- a breadcrumb. A panade. A panade and deep fried like an arancini pork pie. Pano pork pie. Yeah. <laughs> no, what you should try is the the corn picnic eggs. Okay. I'm. And I'm definitely not convinced. I'm not a massive. I've never been a massive egg bloke. I've got more into eggs in recent years. But the corn version of the Scotch egg is really nice. Okay, well, I've just got one thing to tell you. Eggs are good for legs. Like a lot of riders, I've tried loads of training plans, but I often find them too rigid and complicated. But join is a bit different. You put in your availability to train each week and your goal, like riding the ATAP, for example, and then join reverse engineers a training plan specific to your needs. But the really smart thing is how join adapts your training plan as you go. So if you miss a session or you end up doing like a recovery ride or it's an interval day, then join retailers your training plan so you can still hit your goal. It's really simple to use and workout sync to everything from Garmin's and Wahoo's to Strava and Zwift. Or you can pair join to a power meter or smart trainer for instant workouts. Join comes as an app 
And right now, listeners of the Cyclist Podcast can save a third on a six-month join subscription. So that's six months for the price of four. Just check out the link in our show notes and start training with join. I just wanted to tell you that Cyclist isn't just a podcast. No, Cyclist is also a beautiful print magazine. It's packed full of all the best rides from around the world, the newest bikes and kit, and loads of in-depth articles featuring guests just like on today's show. So head on over to cyclist.co.uk slash subscriptions and check out our latest Cyclist Magazine subscription offers.